0: Chapter 7 of Prejudices, First Series. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Karen Malazzi, Massachusetts. Prejudices, First Series by H. L. Mencken. Chapter 7 The Heir of Mark Twain. Nothing could be stranger than the current celebrity of Irvin S. Cobb, an author of whom almost as much is heard as if he were a new Thackeray or Moliere. One is solemnly told by various extravagant partisans, some of them not otherwise insane, that he is at once the successor to Mark Twain and the heir of Edgar Allan Poe. One hears of public dinners given in devotion to his genius, of public presentations, of learned degrees conferred upon him by universities, of other extraordinary adulations, few of them shared by such relatively puny fellows as Howells and Dreiser. His talents and sagacity pass into popular anecdotes, he has sedulous Boswells. He begins to take on the august importance of an actor-manager. Behind the scenes, of course, a highly dexterous publisher pulls the strings, but much of it is undoubtedly more or less sincere. Men pledge their sacred honor to the doctrine that his existence honors the national literature. Moreover, he seems to take the thing somewhat seriously himself. He gives his imprimata to various other authors, including Joseph Conrad, He engages himself to lift the literary tone of moving pictures. He lends his name to movements. He exposes himself in the Chautauquas. He takes on the responsibilities of a patriot and a public man, altogether a curious, and in some of its aspects, a caressingly ironical spectacle. One wonders what the graduate sophomores of tomorrow, composing their dull tones upon American letters, will make of it. In the actual books of the man I can find nothing that seems to justify so much enthusiasm, nor even the hundredth part of it. His serious fiction shows a certain undoubted facility, but there are at least forty other Americans who do the thing quite as well. His public bulls and ukazes are no more than clever journalism superficial and inconsequential, first saying one thing and then quite another thing. And in his humor, which his admirers apparently put first among his products, I can discover, at best nothing save a somewhat familiar aptitude for grotesque anecdote, and at worst, only the laborious laugh-squeezing of Bill Nye. In the volume called Those Times and These, there is an excellent comic story, to wit, hark from the tomb. But it would surely be an imbecility to call it a masterpiece. Too many other authors have done things quite as good, more than a few. I need cite only George Aid, Owen Johnson, and Ring W. Lardner have done things very much better. Worse, it lies in the book like a slice of Smithfield ham between two slabs of stale store bread. On both sides of it are very stupid artificialities, stories without point, stories in which rustic characters try to talk like Wilson Misner, stories altogether machine-made and depressing. Turn now to another book, vastly praised in its year by name, Cobb's Anatomy. One laughs occasionally, but precisely as one laughs over a comic supplement or the jokes in Ayer's Almanac. For example, there never was a handsome cab made that would hold a fat man comfortably unless he left the doors open, and that makes him feel undressed. Again, your hair gives you bother so long as you have it, and more bother when it starts to go. You're always doing something for it, and it is always showing deep-dyed ingratitude in return, or else the dye isn't deep enough, which is even worse. Exactly. It is even worse. And then this. Once there was a manicure lady who wouldn't take a tip, but she is now no more. Her indignant sisters stabbed her to death with hatpins and nail-files. I do not think I quote unfairly. I have tried to select honest specimens of the author's fancy. Perhaps it may be well to glance at another book. I choose, at random, Speaking of Operations, a work described by the publisher as the funniest yet written by Cobb, and the funniest book we know of. In this judgment many other persons seem to have concurred. The thing was an undoubted success when it appeared as an article in the Saturday Evening Post, and it sold thousands of copies between covers. Well, what is in it? In it, after a diligent reading, I find half a dozen mildly clever observations and sixty-odd pages of ancient and infantile wheezes, as flat to the taste as so many crystals of hyposulfite of silver. For example, the wheeze to the effect that in the days of the author's knowledge germs had not been invented yet, For example, the wheeze to the effect that doctors bury their mistakes. For example, the wheeze to the effect that the old-time doctor always prescribed medicines of abominably evil flavor. But let us go into the volume more in detail, and so unearth all its gems. On page one, in the very first paragraph, there is the doddering old joke about the steepness of doctor's bills. In the second paragraph, there is the somewhat newer but still fully adult joke about the extreme willingness of persons who have been butchered by surgeons to talk about it afterward. These two witticisms are all that I can find on page one. For the rest, it consists almost entirely of a reference to M.M. Bryan and Roosevelt, a reference well known by all newspaper paragraphists and vaudeville monologists to be as provocative of laughter as a mention of Bunyan's, Mothers-in-Law, or Pottstown, Pennsylvania. On page two, Brian and Roosevelt are succeeded by certain heavy stuff in the petroleum-5 Nasby manner, upon the condition of obstetrics, pediatrics, and the allied sciences among whales. Page three starts off with the old jocosity to the effect that people talk too much about the weather. It progresses, or resolves, as the musicians say, into the wheeze to the effect that people like to dispute over what is the best thing to eat for breakfast. On page four, we come to what musicians would call the formal statement of the main theme that is, of the how I like to talk of my operation motif. We have thus covered four pages. Page five starts out with an inharmonic change, to wit, from the idea that ex-patients like to talk of their operations to the idea that patients in being like to swap symptoms. Following this, there is a repetition of the gold theme, that is, the theme of the doctor's bill. On page six, there are two chuckles. One springs out of a reference to lighthousekeeping, a phrase which invariably strikes an American vaudeville audience as salaciously whimsical. The other is grounded upon the well-known desire of baseball fans to cut the umpire's throat. On page six there enters for the first time what may be called the second theme of the book. This is the Whiskers motif. The whole of this page, with the exception of a sentence embodying the old wheeze about the happy times before germs were invented, is given over to variations of the Whiskers joke. Page 8 continues this development section. Whiskers of various fantastic varieties are mentioned. Trellis whiskers, bosky whiskers, ambush whiskers, loose, luxuriant whiskers, landscaped whiskers, whiskers that are winter quarters for pathogenic organisms. Some hard, hard squeezing, and the humor in whiskers is temporarily exhausted. Page 8 closes with the old joke about the cruel thumping which doctors perform upon their patients' clavicles. Now for page 9. It opens with a third installment of the gold motif. He then took my temperature and $15. Following comes the dentist's office motif, that is, the motif of reluctance, of oozing courage, of flight. At the bottom of the page, the gold motif is repeated in the key of E minor. Pages 10 and 11 are devoted to simple description with very little effort at humor. On page 12, there is a second statement for the full brass choir of the dentist's office motif. On page 13, there are more echoes from petroleum 5 Nasby the subject this time being a man who got his spleen back from the doctors and now keeps it in a bottle of alcohol. On page 14 one finds the innocent bystander joke. On page 15 the joke about the terrifying effects of reading a patent medicine almanac. Also at the bottom of the page there is a third statement of the dentist's office joke. On page 16 it gives way to a restatement of the whiskers theme, in augmentation, which in turn yields to the third or fifth restatement of the gold theme. Let us now jump a few pages. On page 19 we come to the old joke about the talkative barber. On page 22 to the joke about the book agent. On the same page to the joke about the fashionableness of appendicitis. On page 23 to the joke about the clumsy carver who projects the turkey's gizzard into the visiting pastor's eye. On page 28 to a restatement of the barber joke. On page 31 to another statement. Is it the fifth or sixth of the dentist's office joke? on page 37 to the Katzenjammer joke, on page 39 to the old joke about doctors burying their mistakes, and so on, 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 and so on. On pages 48 and 49, there is a perfect riot of old jokes, including the nth variation of the Whiskers joke, and a fearful and wonderful pun about Belgian hares and airs. On second thoughts, I go no further. This, remember, is the book that Cobb's publishers, apparently with his own knee-heel opstat, chose as his best. This is the official masterpiece of the new Mark Twain. Nevertheless, even so laboriously flabby a farcer has his moments. I turn to Frank J. Wilstack's Dictionary of Similes and find this credited to him. No more privacy than a goldfish. Here at last is something genuinely humorous. Here, moreover, is something apparently new. End of chapter seven, recording by Karen Malazzi, Massachusetts.